freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hey, culminators. Today, it is going to be just you and me. Uh, it's pretty much the one-year anniversary of the Culmination podcast. And I have, uh, in discussing the matter with uh, my friend and producer, Jeremy Core, I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about my background and the work, how I got to do the work that I do and things that seem to be in people's minds when they contemplate the entertainment and information that I bring to them through the podcast and on my, on my many other um, outlets of creativity. But it's, so, you know, we're going to, we're just going to do it, you and me together, as I said, and uh, see, you know, see how it goes. I, I get to save some bucks on this too. Everyone realizes, of course, that I pay my guests handsomely for appearing on the Culmination podcast. So you've got to do some basic homework, right? You've got to follow me on Twitter. I don't think there's anyone who watches this regularly or downloads our podcast who doesn't follow me on Twitter. I could be wrong about that. I'm originally from New York. I lived in Queens. My parents are and were very special people. My father passed away about 11 years ago. Grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan as a basically an orphan. He was raised by his grandmother. My mother emigrated from Cuba in 1956. Her parents were Polish Jews who had the good sense and the good fortune to leave Poland in 1935 and to leave Cuba in 1956. We, I uh, spent my formative years in Brooklyn. I don't really count the Queens years. And indeed to this day, I, like most people, cannot possibly navigate my way around Queens. Lived in Brooklyn until I was nine years old, nine and a half. And when October of 1972 came along, we joined the Great White Flight, probably the, the first Great White Flight out of New York. As the schools were plummeting towards oblivious badness. And uh, we moved to a place called East Windsor, New Jersey, a suburb of nothing it's in mercer maybe it, it 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 is in mercer county it was the first planned unit development in new jersey and everyone else there was a jewish family from brooklyn it was it, you know it was we lived in a townhouse neither of my parents had gone to college my parents were not professionals and in fact i never met a lawyer well my mother worked for a while after my mother was a stay-at-home mom my dad was a payroll clerk. Actually, he was a benefits clerk in a company that slowly ran out of benefits. He was in the accounting department. Great person, my father. I miss him so much. Uh, my mom stayed at home and raised us. She was, that's what moms did in those days. And we didn't live, you know, we didn't live well. I mean, we, we were lower middle class. We lived in a, a two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. And then we bought a four bedroom townhouse made out of Tiki Tacky in, in East Windsor, New Jersey for $36,000 with a VA loan. I guess though, in retrospect, the first lawyer I ever met was probably my mother's boss when we started high school and, and, and my, my mom started working. Uh, as a secretary, she was a legal secretary. In fact, she, she eventually became a legal secretary for a patent lawyer. 
but I never thought of him as any kind of mentor or anything like that. And later when I went to college, I met some lawyers through alumni boards of, in particular, the, the radio station that I was in, WPRB, where I was a, a disc jockey and the director of sales. But I never really knew any lawyers, hardly at all, until, in fact, I, I remember when I had, to, when, I, when I applied to the bar, there's a, I mean, when, when I passed the bar exam, you have to then go through the character and fitness um, committee. And that requires you to submit affidavits of good character from two members of the New York bar. So I had to rely on, oh, yes, an alumnus who uh, I knew through the WPRB trustee board to, 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 and, and I think a roommate's father. I just, you know, I wasn't, I didn't come from a professional background, but, but I didn't have a lot of trouble realizing that I did want to be a lawyer. It seemed natural, it seemed the kind of, I'm very verbal, I'm inquisitive, I'm dialectical in my thinking. That's a nice way of saying I'm argumentative. Uh, I like solving problems. I like politics. I've been interested in politics my whole life. So all those things militated. Also as the child of an immigrant and a second generation American, you want to sort of, you have this desire to get close to and understand the levers of power, I think, in the new country and to try them out because there's this, I don't know. I, I, I just think that was, I think that was somehow part of it too. Everyone who knows me is aware that I am an Orthodox Jew. I wear a black skull cap or a yarmulke as we call it in Yiddish. And I talk a lot about Jewish stuff. My parents were not observant. They had a lot of traditional notions, but my mother's family had left the path of Jewish observance um, in Poland. They were members of the, um, what, what was called the, the Jewish labor bund, a bund being a word that means a brotherhood or a, a form, you know, a group, which was part of the reason they left Poland, actually, because they, they, they felt oppressed, whether they were, Jews were always oppressed in Poland, or not always, it's not true, Poland actually was very generous to, to the Jews in many, many respects, but there were many bad times, and the 20th century was not a good time, by and large, for the Jews in Poland. Anyway, uh, but my parents, my, my grandparents and, 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 and the surviving family that joined them from Europe in the United States after the war, first in Cuba, then the United States, I grew up in an environment where everybody was speaking Yiddish. They were also speaking Spanish. But I had a, I, I had a very strong identification with Jewish nation. And my, my father was not observant at all. And, and his parents uh, had not been observant, but he, growing up in the Lower East Side is a lot in the 1930s and 40s is a lot like growing up in the old country. So he still had some very traditional notions and I had a basic Jewish education of the bar mitzvah. But after college, I decided to pursue a feeling that I had that there was more to my spiritual life into being Jewish than mere ethnic identification. And that I wanted to understand why I should make important decisions in my life um, based on being Jewish, which I knew it was obvious to me that I should do so. I knew that, that being Jewish was fundamental to my identity, but I didn't really know why it should matter. And I had had the experience of going to Princeton, which really set out in stark relief what assimilation would look like 
if I were to pursue it. And it didn't appeal to me. So I, after I graduated college in 1985, I attended a six-week program called the Jerusalem Fellowships at Asha Torah College of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, the yeshiva that specializes in teaching not observant Jews about the Torah and if they want to become observant, which is encouraged, giving them the tools to do so. And I decided at the end of the six weeks that I did want to do so, but that I was going to go to law school. I wasn't going to stay in yeshiva. I didn't want to become a rabbi. So I came back to the United States, attended Northwestern University School of Law, continued my education, my Jewish education there. And then before starting my legal career, I actually spent two years studying in yeshivas. I went back to Aish, studied for um, about a year there, and then went to a couple of other institutions, finishing off at a place called Chaim Berlin in Brooklyn, which is a non-beginner's yeshiva, but which one that was hospitable to certain beginners. And uh, the rest is history. It's brought to my attention from time to time that I'm actually a uh, something of an influential guy uh, in social media. The fact is, I found Twitter very, very frustrating at first. I had been a very successful blogger. I, I have a blog. I don't really blog there anymore because I'm not as interested in the topic as I once was. The topic was trademark law to, to less lesser extent copyright and free speech. The blog is called Likelihood of Confusion, which is a, the test that is used to determine whether there is a, whether a trademark has been infringed, whether there's a likelihood of confusion. I had that, I actively blogged there for about 15 years. And, and it, I, frankly, it was a very popular blog. It was probably one of the most influential blogs on the topic of trademark law for, for quite some time. And what I found fascinating was that as someone who was not a professor and not a, not someone who was doing a lot of peer reviewed or uh, truly scholarly work, nonetheless, um, I was considered something of, frankly, a bit of authority on trademark law because of the writing on the blog. And I realized, began to think a lot about the difference between influence as a result of approval from gatekeepers and influence where you just elbow your way to the front and say what you have to say and see if people are receptive. One of the most gratifying things, in fact, about my peak days of blogging was that I began to realize based on links that were coming in that articles from my blog were being increasingly added to law school curricula by law professors. So, you know, I, you don't get to really find out or you don't, you know, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing you can really put in your resume. I wish I could. I really, I, I would in a second because I, I'm very, I think it's really cool. Uh, but I did become something of a, of a thought leader in, in trademark law. And because of the and the work that I was doing, which was increasingly representing uh, defendants, and I was I became to represent a lot of disruptors, a lot of people who were challenging existing forms of product distribution, who were using trademarks very lawfully to sell things more cheaply than others than than think official or approved or um, distributors were, were selling them. And I also came more and more to represent people who were being victimized by the use of intellectual property law to prevent them from expressing opinions on the internet, review sites, gripe sites. So I began to get more involved in free speech issues on the internet. Um, 
fast forward to 2009 and I was working with a guy named Brian Wallace, who's a tremendous all around internet social media guy and a good friend who was, who, who I had been referred to by Dean Esme. I, I, in addition to the likelihood of confusion blogging, which I, I didn't really want to get political too much on likelihood of confusion. So for politics and general topics, I joined the group blog Dean's World, which was in the day a very influential blog. And I mean to have Dean as a guest on the show. Dean introduced me to Brian and Brian said, you should try this new thing, Twitter. And I tried it and I could not understand what the idea was. And of course, at the time it was all through SMS. There was no web interface. and Eventually, the web interface came along, and I got up to like 3,000 followers, mostly people who knew me through my blogging. And I was stuck at 3,000 followers forever, and no engagement. Now, Twitter was much smaller than it is now, but even then, couldn't get a conversation started with anyone, because nobody who was an active Twitter was really following me. The people who were following me were other trademark and intellectual property law lawyers. Who, and lawyers tend to be much more discreet than I am about expressing their opinions. And I really, but I would just check in from time to time to just kind of see if there was any way that it could. And I'm, I was kind of like the, for, the, for years, I was like the kid looking through the hole of the construction, uh, the, the, the fence around the construction site, you know, I wanted to get in and I wanted to get into the conversation. And about, about seven or eight years ago, 2016, was it? I got into a conversation with Mike Cernovich. I only found out many years later that Mike already knew who I was because he had been, in, when he was in law school, a, an assistant, they called them Sherpas. There was a blog, I don't, I don't know how I think any of you will remember this. There used to be blog carnivals where people would do a, a weekly roundup of various blogs of, of, of a certain category. And the blog carnival or roundup for law blogs was called blog review. And one of the, and which would be how it would be hosted in a round robin fashion. And I hosted a few times. And one of the things they would do in order to help people who were hosting was the Sherpas would be sent out to find interesting stories to feed to the host. And Mike was one of those guys, so he knew who I was. I didn't know who he was. And we got into a little bit of a contentious discussion, but probably because he recognized my name, he bothered to answer me. And all of a sudden I became a person on the internet, around the, uh, or in Twitter rather, around the same time I was involved in the slants case, I, we were the the slants case, uh, Mattel versus Tem, as it eventually eventually became known to the Supreme Court, was working its way up through the Patent and Trademark Office, and the Trademark Trial and Appeal Appeals Board, and the Federal Circuit, and then another return to the Federal Circuit, and then the Supreme Court. We began to get a certain amount of press attention for that. And that enhanced people's interest in what I was doing and what I had to say. And then I became something of an activist. Uh, I, I'd always been a, a Republican. In college, I was the chairman. I was the youth chairman of the Reagan-Bush National Jewish Coalition. 
which was not national, it was for Republicans, nationally for Republicans, but a little bit of a misleading name. In any event, I had waning and waxing involvement in, in political activism. I was, uh, you know, it waxed, it, it waned for quite some time, but the internet was a good way for me to get back involved in it. In 2020, I think my involvement in the Trump, not so much the Trump campaign as the election litigation and the pre and post election litigation and the polemics that were going on and having been on the scene in Philadelphia at, at the convention center raised my profile considerably. And I made friends with a lot of cool guys who helped me become better known, guys like Jack Posobiec and Will Chamberlain. And uh, that's how it goes. You know, you, I, I do think I was deli delivering quality content and I still am. I get, I should explain, I, I started out working in big law firms, which was a very bad match for me, at least at this point in history, because they really prize people who are more off the rack than I am. Is that a good way to put it? I'm a little bit of a um, custom fit. And by the way, the off the rack people can buy and sell me many times over, most of them. It's not a blessing to, to be uh, so unique. But eventually I founded my own law firm and I was able, with not really having much of a network, to develop clients by developing an effective website. It was the Coleman Law Firm, uh, but I, I had the website and I bought blog ads. This was before I was blogging myself. I bought blog ads on, on blogs such as, well, I bought Dean's World, but, but also... Uh, Instapundit. And it was a, you know, it was a couple hundred bucks a month. It really raised my SEO back when very few law firms were really getting it on the internet yet. We're talking about 19, well, it was 2000. Oh, I should, you know, 2000, I should also mention in 1998, I had been involved in a somewhat high profile case called Jews for Jesus versus Brodsky, representing Stephen Brodsky. It was the, one of the first relatively widely reported domain name trademark cases. And it was actually before the anti-cyber squatting law was passed. And I came to the attention of a classmate of mine, the great David H. Bernstein, who was a partner at Debevoise and Plimpton, the, the person who had the career that I should have had if I would have been non-ADHD and better behaved. But he, to some extent, became a bit of a patron as well in the intellectual property bar. Uh, but by 2000, I was more or less on my own. And I was able to get clients using this website because no one else was using a website in a small firm. It was really kind of unheard of. And I I do think that I have a sense of how to come across on the internet as someone that you might want to listen to. That eventually turned out to be a skill that I used on the blog and that I think I use somewhat effectively on Twitter. I know that I'm pretty far out there on Twitter as lawyers go. Uh, especially lawyers who actually have legal work to do. I spend a lot of time on Twitter, more than most of the women in my life. You know who you are, wish I did. But it's basically where my business comes from. It's where my clients come from. I'm the go-to guy for problems on Twitter or, or people who are on Twitter who have issues relating to free speech, discrimination. Trademark cases still come my way through Twitter. And uh, it is interesting to see how that interacts with the practice itself. I'll leave it at that for now. You know, somebody recently said to me that my wife is a conservative thought leader, and I, I think she would be astonished to hear that. 
But the fact is that, as you know, she writes for Legal Insurrection now. She's written for The Federalist. And for a long time, she was writing for uh, Human Events before that project sort of went up in smoke. Jane is um, a lawyer, a graduate of Stanford Law School, uh, wicked, wicked smart, as they say, where she comes from in New England. She is, um, our house is a very interesting place because everyone who emerges from it talks like a lawyer. Uh, and we bounce ideas off each other all the time. And, you know, it's an ex- it's an intense, it's an intense environment. If someone were to ask me what the proudest moment of my career was, it would be impossible not to say that it was winning the slants case. Uh, I will never forget having the opportunity to stand in front of the Supreme Court, well, obviously to appear in the Supreme Court myself, and then afterward to go uh, down those stairs and talk to the reporters. That's come on, I'm, a, I'm like a child of an orphan I'm an Im- and an immigrant. And here I am in front of the United States Supreme Court uh, talking to uh, people on national TV about this free speech case. So that was in many respects, uh, you know, it was a vindication for me on a lot of fronts because I had flopped out of these big law firms and I had taking the, you know, somewhat unpopular stances on free speech. And it, obviously, to me, that's still the highlight of my career. And I hope I get the chance to go to the Supreme Court once again. I'm a partner now with Harmeet Dillon. We've been friendly um, online for a long time. We, we've met for the first time at the so-called social media summit that President Trump had in, in the, at the White House in 2018, which was... Um, a nice demonstration of something that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, I had been at a, at a major law firm in New Jersey. I say major, but you know, 125 lawyers at the time, which is not, you know, today law firms have thousands and thousands of lawyers, but it was a full service law firm and it's a, it's a growing one, a very successful one. And I, they were increasingly uncomfortable with my representation of controversial clients, which was ironic because I came to them because I wanted, I had left the previous large New Jersey law firm that I was in because they were uncomfortable with my representation of controversial clients. And I was assured repeatedly that this would not be a problem here. And then they realized that they didn't mean it. And when I represented uh, some uh, Republican activists who sued over the denial of their right, so to speak, of their claimed right to paint political messages on the street the way BLM did, these guys called me up over the weekend and said, how much time do you need to empty out your office? And when I mentioned this, uh, Harmeet sw- swooped in, said, listen, I'm looking for somebody uh, who can represent the firm out in, uh, in New York on the East Coast. Would you be interested in that? And I'm not sure that she's enti- she entirely knew what she was getting herself into. In fact, I can say confidently that she did not. But I'm certainly enjoying working with Harmi, and I do think she she likes me personally. And I think that, um, you know, she she has grown the firm considerably since she added me as the first um, lateral partner with his own business. And since then, we've uh, been working rather swimmingly, I think. You know, again, our styles are not exactly the same, uh, and our places in the world are not exactly the same, but it's very exciting being in this firm and being at the, in the middle of so many incredible things that are going on. Somebody asked me if I ever, you know, as my profile increases, do I have any view about the experience of getting nasty DMs and emails? It bothers me when people go through the trouble to send me an email. That's a, that's a 
step beyond the DM, but the DM itself, you know, it's one thing to be nasty and abusive in public and to, you know, even if you're anonymous, at least you're putting yourself out there and to send me an abusive DM. I mean, I will, I will often publicize these emails and DMs in order to provide a disincentive. As a general rule, I can, I, I understand that it's part and parcel of the, of the game. People who are cowardly will do this kind of thing. And uh, I'm not afraid of cowards. I will say on the other hand that when it was announced that in, uh, after the election in 2020, that left-wing activists were going to start targeting lawyers who had represented Donald Trump. That bothered me a lot. It didn't scare me, but it was the first time I felt that there was a direct threat to my ability to make a living being suggested. And in fact, it was in response to that that I made my first ever Twitter video, and Mike Cernovich had for years been urging me to use video, to use, to use the old um, Periscope on Twitter. Uh, I made a, I, I had taken a post-election trip to Miami, Miami Beach, where I was having a best vacation I ever had in my life. And I just turned on the camera and started ranting about this, that if somebody, if anybody was going to try to come after Trump lawyers and, you know, harm our practices or harm or threaten our licenses because of the work we were doing, they had another thing coming. And that video went viral. And that's when that confirmed for me the idea that I probably should stop hiding that, you know, that light under a bushel in terms of my ability to come across on video as well. You know, you look at how people have personalized political debate. I mean, I, I think it's a little bit of a fallacy to say that polemics have never been taken all that personally. Well, I mean, I, 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 I suppose if you think back on the days of um, who was it who used to appear as a foil on firing line with William F. Buckley, Michael Kinsley, was that his name? Um, you know, there you definitely had the sense that there was a loyal opposition, that there was dignity. But I do remember as I was coming up in my political awareness as a teenager, how personal, how it was acceptable for someone like Tip O'Neill to personally insult Ronald Reagan. And Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House. And it was understood that liberals could insult conservative politicians, even if they were president. Uh, but there's no question it's gotten a lot worse. And, it's, and, and that sense of, uh, or, the, or that level of calumny and you know, personalized nastiness has absolutely become part of our culture. I think it's pretty clear that Twitter has helped to accelerate it because people are able to say things to each other. That, and I plead guilty to this as well, that they would not say in person. I'm less, I'm not so worried about what happens on Twitter as the idea that what happens on Twitter should now be transferred into human relations and that it's okay to fire someone or to dehumanize them for disagreeing with your political point of view. And it's pretty much a one-way process. I don't want to talk about history. I don't want to talk about what it was like in the 50s, what it was like in the 40s. <clears throat> right now, to be a conservative is to be a persecuted ideological minority. The law, the law doesn't protect, in most cases, such people. I don't see how it really could. And to some extent, I think the market can and should deal with the problem. But what's going on politically, the way the government, the national government in particular, 
and agencies and elite institutions are just taking these incredible liberties with the power and the trust that's been granted to them. Well, let's just say that those phenomena are the reason that I'm doing this, besides the fact that I love doing it, besides the fact that I'm a, a firstborn, insecure, showboating person who loves to get, have attention and, and, and loves to have a good argument. I don't think I can stop it because I do think that people like me and my friends, my friends and my social media friends and my real life friends and my partner, my other partners, we want to do what we can to push back and to return people to return people's lives back to their own control to the extent that we can have any effect on it. And I think that we can. There was once this idea that to be a liberal was to be a civil libertarian and that conservatives were the ones with an inclination towards censorship and restriction of all kinds of choices, including cultural and cultural ones. And obviously now that's become the complete opposite. What happened to the Berkeley free speech movement? What happened to the ACLU? I have been struggling with this for a long time. And the conclusion I think that is inescapable, as cynical as it sounds, is that these were never, these were never sincerely held positions of most of the people who were activists. They were positions of uh, convenience because they were in the process of attacking powerful, conservative, traditional institutions and ideas. And they knew that the only way to do so was to argue for essentially uh, unfettered speech and a definition of speech that encompassed conduct such as nudity and pornography. And I think the proof of that is that the same people were eminently comfortable with the Soviet Union and with communism. And you would think that as a matter of principle, knowing that the world's only totalitarian system to have survived more than a few years, knowing that, that censorship was part and parcel of life in the Soviet Union, and yet being supportive of it, treating it as a moral equal of the United States and of the West, that should have resulted in cognitive dissonance. What you got instead was a just a, you know a, a paradoxical posturing, which sold very well. It worked very well for newspapers because they could publish and say whatever they wanted to say. And here we are now. They're the ones in power now. They're the ones who are, by virtue of this process, they're the ones who have control over institutions. They're the ones who actually represent the establishment that they fought against so hard in the 60s and 70s. And suddenly we have government providing or establishing a ministry of truth. It's an amazing, and no protests. Where's the New York Times? Where's the ACLU? Madness. I uh, get a lot of questions about Elon Musk. Uh, one podcast I was on, the, the um, host asked me, what's motivating him? And I think it's important to recognize that you don't have to fetishize Elon Musk and believe that he's spending tens of billions of dollars and putting that many more tens of billions of dollars at risk merely because he is a staunch advocate of free speech. I think it's possible that he is, but I don't think you have to believe that he is to 
nonetheless believe that his motives are appropriate ones and ones that will be beneficial for people who are interested in free speech on Twitter and elsewhere. Because even if he wants to merely do business with Twitter, I have been for, for years now asking people and getting different answers when I asked, why is Twitter so eager to do something that seems to be against its corporate or its, its rational commercial interest, which is to push away its most influential participants, people who bring others to the site as members, people who keep people on the site as users. If there's any fundamental truth to the Twitter business model, it cannot be based on pushing influential users away. It has to be based on encouraging to encouraging and incentivizing them to stay. If all he does is rationalize that commercial calculus, Elon Musk will have achieved a great thing. Uh, is he going to be able to follow through with it? I don't really know what it is. I think that people who think that he wants to turn it into gab, into a free-for-all, are, are mistaken. I don't think he's said anything like that. I don't think there's any reason to believe that, that he has any interest like that. But if he wants to turn it into something where rules are uniformly and maybe even to some extent, imagine this, transparently applied, rules of content moderation, rules against harassment, even rules against hate speech, if they're consistently and fairly and transparently applied, and maybe there's even a rational, accessible appeals process for people who are banned, that would be revolutionary, revolutionary. So, you know, I, I don't think there's any backing out of it for him. I don't think there's any backing out of it for Twitter. They're going to have to find a way to make it work. I understand that, that the devil is in the details. They haven't worked out the details yet, but the change is already obvious. Everybody knows it. I've added about 10,000 users in the last 10 days not because I'm any smarter or funnier or better looking, but just because of things that are happening at Twitter that seem to be related to the change in ownership or the coming change in ownership. A couple of weeks ago, actually, no, it was last week, I, I posted, I, I made a tweet that said, if you work at Twitter and you're thinking now might be a good time to delete stuff don't don't do it uh there's outstanding litigation going on it would result it would constitute spoliation of evidence and a number of people responded to me and said actually my understanding is that they put in a um an order that or, or actually in a um a, a hold on any system-wide changes at twitter because of the change in ownership Nonetheless, it's obvious, I think, to everyone that some cleanup is taking place. Uh, the increase in conservative engagement and following numbers, the moderation in following numbers of liberal accounts is not organic. It is based on the fact that lower mid-level and lower level mid-level and lower level people who have actually been doing a lot of the censorship and playing a lot of the games taking followers you know taking followers away from big accounts that they didn't like to see growing that's happening less if elon musk does nothing else besides open up the uh the digital records of what's been going on at Twitter, it will be a, it'll also be revolutionary, especially because there are advertisers who are going to be very interested in knowing whether the 
uh, viewership, so to speak, whether the, the ratings to analogize that they have been paying for are real or not so real. And this was something I tweeted about years ago. If you are manipulating follower numbers, you're, you're, you're fundamentally undermining the key metric of the value of what you're selling. So that is definitely going to be interesting. And I'm sure there's going to be, I, I can't, I'd be shocked if there wasn't going to be some litigation coming out of that. You know, Mike Cernovich pointed out something along similar lines. I will say that, you know, people have observed that there's a real question about what's under that rock that's being picked up by Elon Musk. And it's not only the political censorship and who knows what else uh, in terms of feels and in terms of people's livelihoods being ruined, but also the economics of it, what's going, you know, you know, the, the metrics that are being reported to, to advertisers and to partners. Um, something that very few people are aware of is the extent of cooperation between Google and Twitter. Google probably, Google probably saved Twitter from a complete collapse about uh, nine or 10 years ago when it entered into an agreement that made results on Google searches include Twitter uh, and include them very prominently. That was gigantic. That essentially made Google and Twitter partners. Google is very much in the censorship business. They manipulate search rankings. They manipulate YouTube. Uh, they censor YouTube harshly. The involvement of Twitter in that, the way that has affected Twitter, the way that that has affected Google, all those things should come out of the mix. So again, that's another example of where the change in ownership should be quite revealing. You know, also this, I'll tell you something, this ministry of truth idea, I, I don't know how far it's going to even get off the ground. It is fair to say that between whatever they, they, I imagine that they had it in mind as something that was going to help them in November, but I don't think they're going to be able to, it's already May. I don't think they're going to be able to implement the kind of um, censorship of social media that they would want to ahead of the November elections. I think that was the entire purpose of it. It was planned a long time ago, I'm sure. I do think, I, I, it's not clear to me, look, there's a lot about what happens in the Homeland Security Department that is probably of considerable constitutional dubiousness. I wouldn't want to weigh in on what the lawfulness is of this endeavor. I don't, because I don't know exactly what they're going to try to do. I do think we have to be very, very cautious. If there's one thing we all learned, it's that the deal we made with the devil of security and trade of privacy and, and freedom, uh, as Benjamin Franklin had warned us, that was made under the, um, the Patriot Act has been a mistake. The FISA courts are awful. Judges uh, on the FISA court uh, are not acting independently. We wouldn't have had the whole Trump-Russia thing. And the, you know, a terrible idea. And the Supreme Court is guilty of allowing it to, to continue. And I am, as a conservative, I'm guilty of having trusted institutions like the Supreme Court and the White House, the Bush White House, in the belief that they ultimately were loyal to their oaths and to their duties and to the Constitution. That doesn't mean that there were no benefits to it, but the harm is that is certainly outweighed it. 
Now we come into this world of using this claim of misinformation and disinformation uh, as a code word for a, a censorship and in particular making so-called democracy, which they mean anybody can vote anytime, anywhere, no matter where they come from, no matter who they are. Voter fraud has been a massive phenomenon in our elections for years. Republicans did nothing about it, and Republicans have themselves to blame for the position that we're in. And it's it's awful. I, I'm, I'm a Republican, but I was never in the position to do anything about it, neither was Harmeet. She, she knew what was happening in 2020 was going to happen, and she was not given the opportunity to... to to deal with it then, she will, things will be different in 2022 and 2024. So I don't know yet what's gonna be with the misinformation, disinformation, Homeland Security czar, but uh, I'm optimistic that it, it's not gonna go very far and that the judiciary tends to be pretty good on this, although they really in my opinion, dropped the ball on the one case, which was the harbinger of what was to come, which was the our case, Ryan O'Handley, uh, D.C. Drano versus basically the state of California, which used election security weeks after the election as a rationale for Twitter censorship. They told Twitter what to take down. Twitter took it down. The judge said, no, nah, I don't see the problem. We're appealing that to the Ninth Circuit. That's the kind of thing we should expect to see happening at the national level. And we'll be there representing the people who are affected by it and hopefully getting the right results. You know, one of the most significant things that happened in our lifetime was obviously the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. And I don't think it was a pandemic, and I don't think it was a, um, a it was a, a, a you know, the, a, a fake out. Uh, but I do think that it was mishandled tremendously and that the government became a major, major agent of misinformation. Uh, what also happened was the social media um, corporations decided that they would be the judges of what constituted medical information and misinformation and what the approved narrative was. And that was disastrous for a lot of reasons. As, as disastrous as, as it was, and, and, and as harmful as it was to the, you know, the ability of people to express themselves and the, the, the establishment of, a, of, a, of, a, of government narratives as the only acceptable way to look at a problem, it was a blessing in disguise because some things were just so over the top and so wrong and so contradictory that people, regular people, people who for years relied, as most of us did at one point or another, on mainstream media, on the yentas of The View, uh, on the New York Times, on the networks, people began to realize this makes no sense. I remember I... Harmeet asked me to, to represent a group of um, evangelical ministers who were in New Jersey who wanted to protest against, um, against uh, the mandates, not the mandates, but the, shut, the lockdowns uh, on churches. And one of the things we used most effectively in our papers was the fact that BLM rallies were considered to be entirely appropriate massive gatherings of people in close proximity, but things like the New York Young Republican Club uh, annual dinner and, or any other kind of conservative gathering were super spreaders or funerals were super spreaders. 
people began to realize that they were being lied to. And, and, and I think at this point, the world really can be divided into people who are either, they've made a decision that they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they're going to drink the Kool-Aid for the rest of their lives. And people who have had their belief in these institutions shaken forever as they should be. That's the blessing in disguise because more and more people are considering sources of information they would have never imagined themselves having recourse to. Where there's always going to be a solid 25% of the country that is that is brain dead, that absolutely refuse to, to, to engage in argument. They prefer censorship to engagement. Nonetheless, the polls indicate that you can't fool all the people all the time. And if you can't gerrymander, which the courts are increasingly saying you can't, you, it's not enough to fool some of the people all the time if you can't get all some of the people into the right districts. This is still a democracy. And boy, do I hate when people on Twitter say, it's not a democracy, it's a republic. It's a democratic republic. It's a democracy. It's not a direct democracy. It's a democracy. It's still a democracy. That's why we still fight. That's why it's still worth fighting every election fraud case, every case of censorship, every misinformation and disinformation promoted by government as irrefutable truth. That's what we're doing. That's what we have to keep doing. If things go the way Democrats are terrified that they are going to go in November, and I don't think there's much they can do to stop it as much as they would like to, I think the only question is going to be whether Republicans are up to the task of fixing it. They weren't in 2020, but a lot of the problem, I mean, 2016, but a lot of the problems of 2016, people like John McCain and Paul Ryan are no longer there. So I'm optimistic as always. I have a friend who was spending her, she, 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 she admitted to me that she took a very long time to conclude that she was a conservative to admit it to herself because she was in an environment where it was just unheard of. Um, and going along to get along and just nodding your head quietly was ripping her apart inside. And she finally came out as a conservative publicly and then they ripped her apart outside. Her old friends treated her like dirt like dirt. She was blocked. She was abused. She was, you know, um, harassed. Awful. Everything that you would fear. And she said, I think I made a big mistake. And I said, listen, people who are treating you like that were never really your friends. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's you have to acknowledge that it's true. They didn't like you. They didn't believe that you were entitled to your own point of view. They just liked the way you decorated their world. Not everybody has to be a big mouth like Ron Coleman, Kurt Schlichter, uh, Jack Posobiec, Mike Cernovic. But you do have to be true to yourself. In a time when everything is polarizing and when people insist on standing upon falsehood as a stage for their assertion of moral superiority over you, you owe it to yourself, to your conscience, to your soul, to be true to who you are, to be open to persuasion willing to change your mind, and I've changed my mind about many things, and to be prepared to lose a relationship or at least to see it cool off for a while or maybe forever 
over truth. God's seal is truth. You can't avoid the truth. And on your deathbed, you will not ask yourself, did I maintain all the friends that I, all the followers, all the friends, all the uh, fun times, but rather was I true to myself? Did I lie to myself? Did I lie to others about who I am and what I believe? Again, it doesn't mean you have to stick your snout into every argument, but if it comes to that, you have to, you have to be who you are. And the truth is only what it is. There's no my truth versus your truth. It's just the truth. I remember during the 1980s, when again, remember, I was very politically engaged. Wondering how we were going to ever win the Cold War, if it was ever going to end. The Russians had outsmarted us on so many fronts. They had this command economy, this monolithic security state. They had American elites and Western elites, especially Europe, on their side. There was so much going their way. And we were just these naive believers in the power of liberal democracy. And boom, it crumbled like nothing. People sometimes say to me, Ron, I mean, come on, look, look around, look at the, the extent of the voter fraud, look at the, you know, at the absolutely unified power of the, of the, of the, of the social, of the um, corporate media, uh, how governments are, co are colluding with each other to suppress democracy. And yet amazingly, both poll numbers and, and realistic predictions of what's gonna happen in the elections suggest a political change in the near future. There's something about truth that just makes it ultimately have a certain kind of winning, uh, uh, victory. Uh, something about truth that wins out. Something about liberty that wins out. And something also that surprises me about America that makes it succeed in areas where you might not expect that it would at all. I do think there are reasons for great pessimism. I think education in this country is abysmal. I think standards, uh, you know, the way, the, the extent to which government and, and political correctness, whether enforced by government or by large corporations has undermined the ability of American companies to be competitive because they're trying to convince people that being out of shape and being uh, incompetent and being semi-literate are all acceptable ways to which, like, there are a lot of reasons for pessimism, but God runs the world. And people are usually quiet people, but people are getting it. People are turning out. The truckers in Canada were ultimately turned away and to a large extent quashed by the Canadian government. But the Canadian government didn't get to do what it, we all were positive it was going to do, which was to uh, enact a, an emergency decree that was indefinite over the entire country of Canada. It didn't happen. Why not? There was pushback. Last week, the New York Court of Appeals, all Democrats ruled that the congressional redistricting map that had been approved by the New York legislature was unconstitutional. Amazingly, these things break through. These little, and the thing about liberty and truth is that as many great men have said, a little bit of light dispels a great deal of darkness. Between Elon Musk, a circumstance that none of us, none of us imagined was gonna, who foresaw this two months ago? Between Elon Musk and, remember those truckers had to be suppressed in Canada, but why were they there?
How do they get there? How do they know to go there? How do they manage? So now there's going to be more control over their ability to organize something like this in the future. But most armies fight the last war. There's a lot of reasons to be hopeful. Then again, sometimes some of us are just born that way. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.